With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Informative and engaging. Rick Munn. Rick Munn on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of January, 2023. Uh, Little gremlins are running amok here this morning. I don't know what's going on, but hopefully uh, everything's coming through loud and clear for you lovely people out there right now. So, of course, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing and whatever you're doing, we hope it's nice. I hope you enjoy next 50 odd minutes of programming here on TNT. It's all good. Um, I'm just having a look here at the settings. Um, There's a little bit of echo in my earpiece here, guys. I'm not going to lie. So if you could do something about that on the studio end, that would be fantastic. Uh, Coming up this hour, I'm going to be talking with Gemma Cooper, of course, and then we have Christian James coming on to join us. He is an investigative journalist based in the East Midlands in the UK. We're going to be talking about all the stuff that's happening around about farmers at the minute. We We saw last year the Dutch farmers. We've seen the German farmers, the French farmers. There's Romanian farmers weighing in on protests this week trying to uh, fight back against the the, the the tyranny that's being enforced upon them and of course there's stuff happening in Ireland as well on the farming front it's not just localised to one area and then I'm going to be joined hopefully for the last 20 minutes of the show by my old friend Dee Dee Denslow who's going to be beaming in live from Plymouth the Janner himself so plenty more to come uh, before the top of the hour welcome back to Gemma Cooper Gemma we have another story here to do with uh, what seems to be a whole host of COVID inquiries that are going on at the moment. Uh, Scotland seems to be uh, taking the limelight at this point in time. What's happening up there in regards to their current ongoing COVID inquiry? Well, there's there's two aspects to this one. There's the Scottish COVID inquiry, which is ongoing. That's just a, a look at Scotland's, Scotland will look at its own response. But this is actually the UK COVID inquiry. It moved out of London last week and it's decamped to Edinburgh for a while. And it's looking at how the devolved nations in the UK, so Scotland, Wales, um, have coped with their response to the scandemic. So it's in Edinburgh at the moment. And today it's due to hear from really the top medical person in Scotland, which is the National Clinical Director, um, and he will be taking the stand. He may be actually be giving evidence as we speak to the, the UK COVID inquiry as it looks as a whole at how Scotland coped. Now, it's amid a storm of the WhatsApp the WhatsApp deletion, you know, this seems to be such a common theme that's gone through the COVID inquiry so far, you know, where's messages? Oh, we deleted them. Boris Johnson couldn't find his messages. First, former first minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, was in all the papers this weekend because she deleted her WhatsApp messages. Um, And the National Clinical Director, Professor Jason Leach, he is due to give the stand today, due to give his evidence today. But last week, a message of his was shown to this stage of the inquiry, uh, where it said that um, deleting WhatsApp messages was something of a bedtime ritual for him. Uh, and we've also heard from the chief medical officer yesterday, uh, Professor Gregor Smith, where he said he frequently deleted his WhatsApp messages and he told his colleagues to do so every single day. Now, Professor Gregor Smith, I don't know if you remember, but he replaced the former chief medical officer, Catherine Calderwood. Um, She's now been told she doesn't need to give uh, evidence to this inquiry anymore due to ill health. She is the former chief medical officer that had to resign in April 2020 uh, because she was caught breaking lockdown rules very, very early on into the scandemic by visiting her second home in Fife 
and traveling up from Edinburgh. So we can already see that they didn't really believe what they were saying very early on. And her replacement, Professor Gregor Smith, who gave evidence yesterday, he also said that through the decision-making process in Scotland, they were very keen to follow the science. So I think we can understand that we can't really trust a word that comes out of their mouths. So the National Clinical Director will take to the stand today. We'll hear what he's got to say. He shot to fame during the scandemic. He was on Scottish television nearly every night with Nicola Sturgeon, the former first minister. So he he was something of a Chris Whitty figure uh, in Scotland. So he held a lot of clout. I think what's the most interesting thing, though, is that government policy clearly is being decided on WhatsApp and not in Parliament. That applies to both the England side of things and the Scottish side of things. It's clear something, you know, information was not being retained. It was government policy, apparently, in Scotland to delete all WhatsApp. Um, But of course, if things are said in Parliament, uh, they go down as a matter of official record of history. So in in the UK Parliament in London, we've got Hansard, and the Scottish version is called the official record. Every word is documented, whether it's political debate, an inquiry, laws being passed, it goes down in history. You put something on WhatsApp, Mm, not so much the case. So it's clear that we have we have decision making and policy being decided on digital social media. Mm. It's clear that uh, this policy of not retaining information is deliberate. How they'll kind of fudge it uh, in the inquiry. I mean, the inquiry itself is a fudge. We know that. We've heard, you know, the the the, the London side of things has just been a kind of blaming match, a slanging match, a tit for tat, and no real nuggets have come out of it. And, and I think that's deliberate. We have discussed this before. So it'll be interesting to see. He's the top medical person. He's due to take the stand. We've already seen his messages saying, just delete everything. It's a bedtime ritual. Uh, Clearly that they were instructing their staff to do this. Um, How they'll talk their way out of it. Well, it remains to be seen what what he says to the inquiry or whether he tries to brush it under the carpet. But as we all know, it's an inquiry. It's just a little fact finding mission. No one loses their jobs. It's just a kind of like, let's have a look at what went on and appease the public consciousness. Um, But let's see. Let's see what this guy has to say. Yeah, it's, I'm just thinking, listening to you talk there about, uh, you know, the, the deleting their WhatsApp messages that became part of their daily routine. Obviously, it's going to be very, very difficult to uh, recall those because there's a little sign that comes up as soon as you send a message to say we operate end-to-end encryption so that only the recipient can see what you're sending. And then if they're deleted, they're deleted unless screenshots are taken, which, of course, people can doctor anime. The predecessor to that was emails, which I think, in a way, were the best way to communicate for forensic paper trails because prior to emails before the internet everyone wrote letters or kept ledgers and those were easily shredded and incinerated but with emails even when you delete them uh, you can still forensically recover them from servers so they're very very hard to completely delete an email but whatsapp as you've rightly said seems to be uh, replacing that as the method of communication possibly because obviously everyone uh, has instant access to their phone those little notifications pop up but also when you swipe to delete your chat it's gone, and I don't know how secure it is, really. I'm sure Meta, Mark Zuckerberg's squad that runs WhatsApp, I'm sure they have a humongous server somewhere that has every message that's ever been sent, whether or not they claim there's end-to-end encryption or not. That's just my little, uh, you know, suspicious mind in action here. But certainly it's odd that at the same time, I don't know if you saw this or not yesterday, but the the Prime Minister, the 10 Downing Street account on Twitter, uh, put a message up to say, hear ye, hear ye. And they had a town crier making a complete fool of himself saying, the UK government 
is now on WhatsApp. So you can now have the UK government as your very own contact on WhatsApp, and they will keep you briefed, Gemma, with what's going on in the UK. Imagine having the government as a contact on your mobile phone. I'm sure there's nothing sinister about that, or certainly not something to be suspicious of. What do you think? Yeah, I must admit, yeah, I um, I saw that message. Uh, Stay tuned, something exciting is coming, and all the speculation around that. Me and James Freeman were discussing that on the mm-hmm. Freeman report yesterday because it mm-hmm. broke just before we went on air, and we were su- mm-hmm. suggesting that it was going to be a general election announcement, as were many people speculating on on Twitter when that was uh, when that was announced. And uh, what does it turn out to be? It, the government's going on WhatsApp. Yeah, but I I agree with you. Nothing sinister about that. I wouldn't. I'm not having the government added to my contacts on my mobile. Oh. phone you must be joking i mean and, you know no. i'd rather not have a phone to be honest um but they clearly because they made a big deal about it on on x twitter whatever you want to call it they made this big deal about it there was all sorts of speculation what could this announcement be is it world war three is Man- hancock resigning mm. you know there's all kinds of, of jokes and comments going around and it generated a lot of interest so they clearly feel it's something to get excited about whatsapp whatsapp which indicates how much it is being used behind closed doors and to decide policy and to decide decision-making, especially with health and to cover your tracks. So they clearly favor it as as the method of communication. They do, they do. And just uh, just as we're up this one up, some of the comments underneath that post that the UK government had put up, uh, someone asks, uh, have you found Rishi Sunak's WhatsApp messages yet? Someone else said, make sure you do a backup of all the government's messages. And then Alex Richards writes, are the messages set to auto-delete upon reading? So obviously there's a lot of cynicism there regarding the government and WhatsApp. And I think it's another troll job. Uh, I think they know there's a lot of distrust in WhatsApp. So what are they doing? the old tubers delight they're coming out there and they're saying hey we've got a whatsapp account now that you can follow us and we can communicate with each other i think they're just a bunch of chancers but you know that's the british government and whoever's responsible for all this is probably having a quiet chuckle somewhere in the the deepest darkest recesses of whitehall as we speak and i will not be adding them to my contact list either so we've got to take a, a pause now Gemma. we've got to take a break and then i've got a guest coming on here but massive thanks to you of course for all your input this morning and we shall reconvene tomorrow morning at nine on the open line show that's Gemma cooper i'm rick munn stay tuned for christian james who's incoming here like an exocet missile on tnt today's news talk TNT's Misty Winston. She says, how is anyone still talking about October 7th? What Israel has done since October 7th is many times worse than what happened on that day by any conceivable metric. The only way to feel otherwise is to believe Israeli lives are worth many times more than Palestinian lives. How is Israeli suffering still being centered over vastly less significant acts of violence three months ago, while exponentially worse violence and suffering is being inflicted by Israelis right this very moment? If your nation is attacked and you respond to that attack by immediately murdering thousands of children with incredible savagery, then you forfeit any right to expect anyone to give a shit that your nation was attacked. Israel responded to the Hamas attack by doing something much, much worse than anything Hamas has ever done. And in doing so, completely delegitimizing itself as a state and completely validating everything the Palestinian resistance has been saying about the state of Israel since day one. Misty Winston on today's News Talk TNT. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help and Covenant House was there for me. 
One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Okay, we just keep the new blood flowing through the TNT arteries and veins. I'm happy to be joined for the first time here on Locked and Loaded today by none other than Christian James. Christian is an investigative journalist and a contributor to uh, our very own Patrick Henningsen's 21st Century Wire. He's based in the Midlands in the UK. And today, for the short time that we have here together, we're going to be talking about the developments with these huge protests that are happening in Europe at the minute in and around farmers. Uh, Christian all really kicked off last year uh, in the Netherlands uh, with the Dutch farmers. Uh, there was a whole hullabaloo last year where they were talking about uh, cutting down on nitrogen and the fertilizers were going to be affected, the outputs were going to be affected. They wanted to grab land off the farmers. There was a big outcry about that protest. This seems to be spilling across Europe now. We've got France, we've got Germany, got Romania, different places. What's really triggering the farmers? What's got them to the point they're taking to the streets like this? I think overall there is... A, a synergy between them because they all appear from a certain perspective lens to be uh, protesting farming, protesting government, uh, big situations that are coming from a top-down perspective. However, what's happening in the different countries does appear to actually be slightly different. They are aligned by their perspective, by their their optics, shall we say. But uh, when it comes to their individual different challenges, they are coming from different perspectives. So what you have is lots of different people, like like a mo- like most protests. Actually, most protests are made up of different groups, different sectors, but they're kind of all walking in unison for the same reason. But like you said there, rightfully so, the nitrogen was the kind of uh, the spark, shall we say, over in the Netherlands. Um, so yeah, it was predominantly... Um, there was a protest against ammonia being used and nitrous oxide being used uh, into the soil. What that actually normally does, it uh, basically it gives the um, the soil, the minerals in the soil, uh, a boost basically to grow mm-hmm. uh, the the crop faster. Um, so to obviously keep up with the demands on the supermarkets, there's certainly the demands um, from industry is they need to grow the crop as fast as possible. So what happened is, of course, when that was no longer available or when now we now have the EU and the top-down perspective going, no, you need to stop using that because, of course, there is an environmental damage happening because of that. Um, obviously, leaving ammonia in the soil is damaging the soil's viability for like, like five to ten years out. So there is a reason why they're saying not to use it. But what So the farmers feel that they are um, being unfairly treated because they cannot keep up with the demand of the aspect put upon them. Um, they're also facing a regarding um, situation regarding their livestock. Um, you've probably seen those reports as well as I have. Uh, they're demanding the livestock in certain parts of the Netherlands be reduced by as much as 70%, which for a farmer, a small and mid-sized farmer, 
that is just catastrophic for your business. So they found themselves also this past, uh, I believe it was December, there was an article that came out of uh, Euroactive, also highlighting the fact that now um, small and medium-sized farms have found themselves lumped in with larger sized farms in terms of their tax bracket. Uh, what mm. this means is if you have um, livestock that numbers are 350, so you have 350 pigs, uh, lambs uh, and cattle for to if it exceeds that threshold, you're considered to be a large farm and thus you are taxed accordingly. So rightfully so, those small and mid-sized farmers cannot keep up with that because of course we have the other catastrophe upon this. We have uh, the red diesel situation of what's happened in the Netherlands. And of course is the situation in France is that they've taken the tax subsidies away from uh, the fuel. What used to be, you could drive um, tractors, farming vehicles, using uh, basically a version of diesel. If you drive on your own land, you don't have to pay as much um, of for your fuel and diesel. So what's happened is that tax relief, shall we say, has now, they've now reinstated it, saying, no, actually, you can drive on the road, sure, but if you're driving on your own land, you've also got to pay the price of diesel. So that subsidy has actually disappeared. So you have that context. So from here, you have uh, Germany faces itself in a very similar situation. Um, you have, again, Another problem that's coming out of this is the Ukraine. So um, particularly countries, Poland, Romania, uh, Moldova, they've made um, particular strides. They've actually been blocking um, roads in from Ukraine into their countries. The farmer protests in their respective countries actually has been to set up roadblocks at the side of the road with their trucks and tractors, not to go to the government, but actually just to stop Ukrainian trucks coming in. Because what's happening in their perspective is that they can undercut the value that um, the stock is sold at. So what's happening is Ukrainian stock is coming in and they're able to sell it uh, to the supermarkets, to the businesses and industry at a cheaper price than they can produce it locally. And they exist in that country. They live there. So in fact, what's happening is this um, part of the EU agreements with the Ukraine, of course, is to bring this stock in. So that's causing uh, major uh, frustrations with a number of countries that are facing that situation. Is that the sort of stories that you've been coming across as well? Yeah, it is. Uh, there's there's one in particular uh, that was reported in France, uh, 24.com. Of course, elections are coming up in France and, you know, what? sound bites need to be made and appeasements need to be made to certain groups of people because they don't want to lose votes. So French politicians, the headline here seems to attempt to appease angry farmers ahead of European elections. France's new prime minister, Gabriel Attal, that young lad, said he paid tribute to the country's agricultural sector this week, responding to the growing discontent of farm workers uh, and angry at red tape and high costs. Again, talk is cheap, is it not? Of course, politicians are great talkers, but they're not great when it comes to doing. They're not good when it comes to helping people. They're good at talking about helping people that that doesn't normally translate into action. Should we take any government promises at this time or any promises or acknowledgements that, hey, these are great guys, they're doing fantastic, we need to do all we can to help them and then promptly do nothing. Is that what we could expect to see, for example, from the French uh, politicians for the remainder of 2024? I quite possibly say, obviously, Atoll obviously has only come into, um, he's obviously been in the public office for a little while, but this is the course, mm -hmm. it's the job of the Prime Minister. He's got to make uh, an impression, he's got to make his uh, presence known. Of course, talking to the farmers right now, do this massive public protest, is perhaps the right optics, shall we say, is to be involved with. Um, I, You know what happens with all politicians, as we all do, is mm -hmm. that there's a bureaucracy to be had. They, got, even if they, for the best will in the world, they want to, they are part of their constituency, they are listening to the people around them, and they perhaps, in some ways, 
mean what they say, but in order to get it over the line, in order to get that legislation happening, that often takes a long time um, to make happen. So even if your promises are well and just and come from the right place, making these things happen is a very different um, challenge entirely. Um, of course, particularly with the French protests, talking about they have lots of different issues, lots of different problems. Um, so that in order to get any one of them passed, it's going to be a challenge for anyone stepping into the situation. Um, unfair competition, of course, is the, is the topic. Again, that really comes from uh, the Ukraine and, and their um, ability to undercut local. Um, I was listening to a... Um, an interview with the French Union, sorry, the French Farmers Union um, head, and he was talking about how in France, particularly, 55% of all the chickens eaten in the country now are imported, and that the poultry farmers in France are facing um, detrimental catastrophe because basically they can undercut them entirely um, being imported, so that the the poultry growers in France are facing um, a difficulty. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely coming to a head, Christian. And you know, we did see it start last year in uh, in in the, with the Dutch farmers, but without a shadow of a doubt, this is spreading uh, throughout Europe as we speak. We've got to take a quick pause uh, for some news headlines, just thirty seconds or so. When we come back, I want to look at the motivation. Why why are they squeezing the farmers at this time? Why are they going against the people that are providing the very food that are placed on these people's tables? It seems like an odd move to make, but yet they're making it anyway. So there has to be some kind of a motivation behind that i want to maybe break that down with you and see well what are they sure. playing at why are they doing this why are they enforcing this at this particular time so please listeners don't go away we shall be right back after the news headlines here on tnt today's news talk i have some even more exciting news tnt radio news matt boyland here with a look at your tnt headlines Tensions are building in the U.S., where a battle over border security is brewing between Texas and the federal government. Trump has pledged to seal the U.S.-Mexico border if re-elected as president. The U.S. and the U.K. have carried out another wave of airstrikes against Iranian-backed terrorists in the Middle East. And Russia's foreign minister has hit out at the West for arming Ukraine with cluster bombs and depleted uranium shells that have been used against civilians. Are you enjoying listening to TNT Radio? Do you think we're doing a good job? Then please let us know. Why not leave us a like or a positive review or comment on Facebook, Gab or Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Okay, just continuing in conversation with Christian James, who's an investigative uh, journalist based in the UK. We're talking about the, the farmers' uprising, I suppose you would call it an uprising, that's happening in Europe at the minute. I suppose this really, the, these types of uh, protests really started uh, to catch the public's eye uh, two years ago now, whenever the French, uh, the Canadian truckers decided to descend on Ottawa, uh, protesting against Justin Trudeau. Then there were other uh, blockades rolling across Europe at the time. Now we're seeing these mass uh, farmers' protests. Seems a little bit odd, Christian, that they're going after the farmers when you consider that when you go to the supermarket or you go to a farmer's market the stuff that you buy the stuff that you eat the stuff that keeps you alive is actually coming from farmers so you would like to think you there was one group of people that you would want to keep happy and sweet it would be the farmers maybe i'm reading too much into this but i'm seeing echoes of the hospitality industry it was really attacked during the lockdown years now a lot of people are selling up and getting out of business uh, properties are being reclaimed. They're being turned into residential type properties. Offices are being turned into residential or hotels are being overrun now by government agencies like Circo or 
acting on behalf of the government, places like Circo, procuring hotels, paying huge amounts of money for full occupancy. Hoteliers who have been getting at the neck are appeasing. They're giving up uh, their hotels in return for funding, which you can understand from an economic point of view. Could this be a way to edge farmers out? make life so miserable for them, offer them a huge amount of money to buy them out, which they'll probably take because they don't see a future in farming, then that leaves all food production, etc., in the hands of the government. Or am I uh, reading too much into this? You, you know what? I don't think you are reading too much into it. There is some other aspects as well that are really important that it's, it's just worth touching on in our, in our minutes here. Mm -hmm. So yesterday also there was a UK farmers protest that happened mm -hmm. in London. Um, so there, um, like you were saying, that a lot of people are coming out of the industry. So 49% uh, of the farmers in the UK claim to now be wanting to leave the market. So right on point with what you were saying there, they want to step away from farming entirely because they are literally on the brink of collapse and bankruptcy, uh, walking away just because the we have a pricing issue in the UK. So what we have, uh, the major competing supermarkets, of course, want the prices to be at the cheapest possible price. You know, I, I literally work for a, a, as a, as a lead manager for a, a major UK, um, retailer so i'm very much aware of what happens with the stock when it leaves the business the logistics of how it gets to a supermarket or what happens is supermarkets literally on a dime can go no we don't want it today um and then the farmer is literally left with stock that goes out of date it goes it goes to waste effectively and it's awful so we had uh, what happened yesterday is they placed 49 scarecrows outside london outside downing street in protest to say that 49 percent of our industry um, is not supported and about to walk away so yes the, the farmers do find themselves in a difficult place they they're not quite sure what to do they're not quite sure how to work together also you have across we talk about is the issue is the issue beyond uh, the boundaries of europe actually yes it is there is a situation happening in bolivia right now very similar situation that it is being kind of a again by the optics looking like a farmers revolt protest so they, they do appear to be more aligned to their former president over there and the the peasants uh, union as they say are obviously standing standing with him and there was some uh, riots and frustrations yesterday that happened on the streets of bolivia yesterday but what, what we were talking about we're talking about globalization of food aren't we we're talking about a situation that wants to consolidate um so i do think that's what is intentionally driving this i think the intention is to basically to bankrupt farmers to capture the land in the netherlands of course they want to buy back 50 percent of the farmers land that from small and uh mid-level agriculture and they take it basically to nationalization put it under the uh, the thumb of the government but you and i both know as the listeners of tnt do that's not the government that wants that that's big industry that wants that big um the big corporate uh, world wants that so they want to be able to control that food supply um so i do wonder is there a creation really of interdependency if you drive the level of food availability down what happens is the food price goes up so actually you have more for less you have less food availability but you have uh, more profitability and i think that is what they're driving at because that actually means you can get more for less you don't have to put as much in and from all but how all businesses work of course you want to strip away your costs as much as possible so if each country in each region is producing enough food and enough surplus in order to sell uh, its abundance what you what you do by reducing every country's uh, food output by 30 percent you actually make the countries interdependent on each other in order to survive uh this i guess is a form of communism isn't it it's therefore you have potentially entire areas of we could use the example of the eu we'll say we want this area over there for agriculture this area over there for residency this area over here i know for recreation and kind of replan the entire uh, region continentally as a as a city um I do wonder if that's the case. Is it is it to make areas to be almost like a 
a city farm, as it were, but the whole uh, continental state that that has come up in conversation. That does seem very complex to put together. But what you have driving this, of course, is the net zero agenda, the ability to basically say to a farm, to say to a government, to say to a regional area, no, in order to um, reach our goals, in order to save your business, to save our planet and our lives, is you have to reduce your climate output, you have to reduce your carbon, you have to go down to net zero. And these are the targets, or else you've got to find yourself facing fines, facing bankruptcy, and eventually we're going to take it anyway. So this is this is the nudge to make that happen, I think. You know, uh, you made a brilliant point there about uh, availability. So if someone was to be able to control the food supply chain, you know, if they could reduce the output, then that's going to push the prices up. You know, with the reduced availability comes increased prices. If you set that against the current cost of living crisis, that's going to doubly uh, make the problem worse, especially for people that are struggling. And of course, that makes people easier to control as well. If you control someone's food supply, you pretty much you can dictate what they do. If they don't play ball, I'm looking way down the line here if this ever matters manifests itself, but they're going to be in a very, very dangerous position. It's almost like the agricultural version uh, of OPEC or Saudi Arabia. If they want to turn on the, uh, the, the, the oil top or turn off the oil top, they're going to be able to influence oil prices, and we're going to be paying for it at the pumps if we're drivers. The other thing is, too, uh, just uh, as we wrap this one up as well, farming isn't an easy gig to begin with, okay? A lot of farmers, uh, it's a generational business as well. Probably, if you're a farmer, the chances are very high that your father was a farmer, your grandfather was a farmer, the farm's been handed down from generation to generation, you'll probably hand it down to your children. But if you're sitting there at the minute, you're working very long and very unsociable hours and you're actually losing money and then you're looking at your kids and you're thinking, well, there's not really going to be much left to hand them. And I know my dad gave it to me and it's been in the family for a long time, but there's a huge incentive for me to get out of farming now. That could give the head, kids a head start. Again, are, are they being manipulated into the position where if the offer's right, if the price is right, that they will sell up and turn the, the, the farmland or the agricultural land into the hands of other people that they could, could then control the food supply? I do think that is the case. Uh, near where I live, I literally live on, uh, I live in Nottingham, uh, the city of legends, they say, but I live on the really outskirts. I live really close to the Greenbelt land here. So what we have is a number of farmers to a nearby. And I've spoken to them personally, and they each tell me, uh, one actually specifically gave me a number. So he's part of the rewilding program that you may well have heard of. So he had a vast amounts of different crops, but now surrounding his crop is now massive rewilding patches. So he told me he was paid £600 per acre not to plant um, last year and the year before. Mm -hmm. So he says it's actually is much more beneficial to earn money that way by not planting mm -hmm. on an annual basis than to produce the crop. It's easier. He has more hours and more availability. Mm -hmm. He can see his family more. And plus he's making money, obviously, on the side because of that. But he says, yeah. ultimately, it's true. What's happening is that we are producing less stock. So we're more dependent on other farms that are also being incentivized in the same way. And he, his perspective was it's definitely being driven from a top-down perspective. And his his argument really was it was the EU doing that. I, I tend to think that there's people above the EU who are trying to pressure this upon the people. And you know what? Just as we wrap this up, we can't blame, we, can't, we might like what's happening, but you can't blame the farmers for taking these incentives because if it was you or I, if I was out working that farm at five o'clock in the morning and losing money hand over fist and was in dire straits financially and the government effectively said, listen, Rick, we're going to pay you just to rewild your fields instead of going out slogging your guts out there. You'll have more time with with your family, you might be able to actually retire, buy your house outright. You can't blame people for actually being tempted uh, with offers like that. And of course, that's the government.
government's uh, modus operandi or the globalist modus operandi. They'll put people into that position where they're between a rock and a hard place, and then they'll offer them uh, a nice, tasty incentive to get out. So, like I said, we mightn't like it, but you can see where their uh, methodology is, and you can understand why people are potentially uh, considering taking them up on these offers. Christian, it's been absolutely fascinating talking about this. Who would have thought uh, farming and uh, the mechanics behind it and what they're maneuvering people to do could be so deep and we're only scratching the surface on it. We're out of time right now. So a massive thanks to uh, Christian James and you can follow him. Uh, you're not very active on the old X platform. I noticed last night at Define Christian with a K. Is there a better place, uh, a website that you have or better getting in contact with you through 21st Century Wire? Where's the best place to find your work? Yeah, 21st Century Wire is where I appear to be uh, making my output more more known really as Christian James on there I do have my, yep. my Twitter handle it's 21 uh, Christian J uh, so you can follow me on Twitter on X um, obviously I do shout out a lot of the content that's produced on 21st Century Wire mm -hmm. and of course keep in up to date with uh, what's going on in the world um, you know the social media is a strange place I'm trying to stay off it as much as possible <laughs> you're a wise man you're a wise man I'm trying to do the same but failing miserably at it but in the meantime like anyway, uh, <laughs> appreciate appreciate your time this morning Christian hope you have a good day and hope Hopefully this won't be the last time you and I talk here on uh, TNT on Locked and Loaded. So we've got to take another pause. And then when we come back from the break, Darren Denslow, Dee Dee uh, Denslow, Wolvesnet will be joining me from Plymouth. So please don't go away. Stay tuned for more here on TNT, today's news talk. Give me a minute. With TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Last week, Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady, gave an interview and she talked about what she believed the Republican Party was doing to her son, Hunter Biden, and to the rest of her family. I think what they are doing to Hunter is cruel. And I'm really proud of um, how Hunter has life uh, after addiction and um, love my son and it's had, it's hurt my grandchildren. And that's what I'm so concerned about. Now that's ridiculous, of course, because Hunter Biden decided not to honor a subpoena from the Congress, and he's facing 17 years in prison on tax charges out in California. Uh, but nonetheless, former GOP chairman Michael Steele ripped his former party. The party of family values doesn't have the compassion to understand the addiction that drove Hunter to behave the way he did. I'm telling you, they got their own children and relatives who have those same issues. Now, take how would you like that to be displayed across the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post? Newsbusters Mark Finkelstein asked if Steele was threatening Republicans, threatening to reveal stories about other people's children. Sounded that way to me. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on TNT. Many pollution sources can affect the air you breathe. From power plants and vehicles to dust and wildfires. Knowing more about local air quality can help you protect your health. If you're thinking about buying an air sensor, EPA has a series of videos to help you get the most out of it. Learn how EPA collects and uses regulatory data, how EPA communicates health messaging, and how to interpret the readings from your sensor. Visit epa.gov slash air dash sensor dash toolbox. You're with Rick Munn on today's News Talk Radio. TNT. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Just like the good old days again, the good old days of yore on TNT. Today's News Talk, I'm happy to be joined by my smiling friend, 
over in deepest, darkest Plymouth, none other than the Janner himself, D.D. Denslow, a.k.a. Walsnet. I have to ask you the question, how are you doing today, my friend? Oh, I'm very, very well. And it is pretty dark and grim and gloomy out here in Plymouth. Grey skies as far as the horizon. But other than that, I'm wonderful, mate. And it's always good to see you, Rick. I uh, hope you're well too, my friend. Yeah, I am. And I know how much you love the wintertime. I know how much you love those dark mornings, those dark nights, those grey skies, that shivering, biting rain. I know how much you love it. And I know you're devastated to be sitting in your warm flat this morning talking to good old Rick Munn. But listen, I'm really happy to have you on here. We've got a blast through as much as we can here this morning. Darren, I, like word association, things are cropping into my head. You know me. You know me. You know how we work here. We just roll with the punches. Grant Shops is the first thing that springs into my head. I noticed you put a post up about him, very rightly highlighting that he's not just Grant Shops, is he? He's got more than one alias. He also goes under the name Michael Green, I think, and a few other dodgy names as well. Why doesn't he just call himself Grant Shops? Is that even his real name? Uh, I don't know. It, it appears, and I didn't know this until I put the post out. I knew about the Michael Green story, mm -hmm. that he was a marketing guy, a, a web internet guy. Some are saying that he is actually an internet con man, uh, but it turns out he's got multiple aliases. I don't have their mm -hmm. names in front of me. I didn't know he was going to chuck Grant Shaps at me, Rick. Uh, but um, yeah, it appears he isn't quite who he seems. But when you go and have a look, at his uh, job roles in the in, within the UK government, he's had some very high, very prominent positions in our government to do with transport, net mm -hmm. zero, energy, mm -hmm. and now he is the UK's defence secretary. So a man who has been described as an internet scammer who's had multiple names is now the head guy for the UK defence at a time when we are perilously hurtling towards potential conflicts with Russia, China and with what's going on in the Middle East. And then you add into that mix that our leader and the foreign secretary are both unelected and it seems the decision making for getting us into wars, for sending our troops into conflict are by people who don't necessarily have a proper public mandate. And I find this deeply concerning, Rick. You know, politicians and corruption are two words that go hand in hand. I mean, let's be honest, nobody's shocked when they hear about political corruption, but the lack of integrity and the lack of due process that seems to be going on at the minute. For example, you know, you mentioned the, the unelected PM, Rishi Sunak. Let's not forget his uh, six-week wonder predecessor, Liz Truss, was also unelected, who stepped into Boris Johnson's clown shoes. And in that same period, Darren, you remember, what, 18 months ago, we had four chancellors of the Exchequer within the space of about six months, I think. We had Rishi Sunak, who was the then chancellor. And then we had, uh, who did we have? Kwasi Kwarteng. And then no, we had uh, somebody, somebody else was in there. And then we had the current, you know, Jeremy Hunt in there as well. So it's like a revolving door of politics. Very few of these people have been elected. People like Grant Shops, who's operated in many capacities in the cabinet, has multiple aliases. This is public knowledge. But yet, it, I think, are the public so desensitized now? Are they so desensitized to corruption and skullduggery and shenanigans that even when something like this is made public, people just shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, so what? Uh, let's, let's vote Tory anyway come April, May, whenever they hold the election, or let's go for Stormer. Are people that blind? 
Uh, I mean, I think outside of the Twitter bubble that me and you operate, mm-hmm. the alternative media sphere, people are well are well aware. But, but the people who are aware aren't doing anything. We're speaking out. We're sending mean tweets. We're not really doing anything. If I went and spoke to the average person on the streets and said, do you know who Grant Shapps is? They may have heard of him, but they wouldn't know any of these more uh, concerning details about his past and his past names. Um, and the other side of it is people have become just so beaten down. People are so concerned about their daily lives. Can I feed my kids this weekend? Can, uh, you know, have I got a job in a month? You know, because my business might be one of the 74,000 small businesses that are about to go to the wall. We look around our communities. Our streets are a mess. Uh, Everything is gray and miserable at the moment because of the weather. Uh, uh, Half the population doesn't appear to be from the UK. The people are trodden down and i think they've created a world for us here in the uk and across the west that is so miserable that people don't want to fight for it and um we need to i personally feel that we really need to spur the public up we need to sort Mm -hmm. of wake them up and say hey the uk is worth fighting for and the way that we can do it is get out in the streets and start protesting things like the unelected officials who are potentially taking us into a world war three Well, seeking beautifully into uh, something else that we were going to talk about this morning, which is military, you'd highlighted a story potentially to touch upon. uh, This relates to Germany, but we'll just address it and then we'll apply that to potentially what could happen in the UK. So Germany at this point in time is weighing up the option of allowing foreign citizens to join the German army. So a senior uh, lawbreaker, yeah, Freudian slip there, lawmaker uh, has told DW a potential scheme could include people not just from current EU members, but also from candidate countries and provide a quicker path to German citizenship, literally throwing the doors of the army open to just about any old Tom, Dick or Harry that wants to come in and join. Grant Shops, that old uh, rat, a.k.a. Michael Green, was on TV yesterday when he was pushed about the falling numbers in the British military, dropping from about 106,000 down to about 75,000-ish. said, oh, it's not a problem. The overall numbers are good. We've got our big recruitment drive going on. And then on TV, pure cringe, he said, anyone out there that's interested in joining up and enlisting in the army, Feel free to give us a shout. How cringeworthy is that, that he's literally on TV begging people uh, to join the armed forces, Darren? That there seems to be a massive recruitment drive across the West. You know, we're seeing it in the USA. We're seeing it in Scandinavian countries like Sweden and Finland on the border of Russia. And now the war propaganda, the recruitment videos have begun, or at least I first started seeing them uh, on social media and on TV, etc. here in the UK. So it doesn't say much for our military uh, if we're begging out for, uh, for people to come and join. Obviously, the indigenous populations of our country aren't signing up themselves. And then the story comes out of Germany that they are looking potentially to to uh, employ and uh, recruit uh, immigrants, illegal immigrants. They're doing this in the USA already. And it reminded me of uh, a film. I always like to chuck a film in the mix, uh, Rick. Mm -hmm. uh, Starship Troopers, brilliant sci-fi. But the premise of that film is that if you want to become a citizen in the United States, then you must do two years service. And I think this is what the Germans are angling at. They're going to get all these illegal immigrants. They're then going to say, yeah, you do two years service. If you survive it and the Russians don't kill you, then you can become uh, a member of Germany. I reckon they're going to do that here in the UK. And then finally, 
all of a sudden we find that we've got our armed forces here in the UK, something that we've always been incredibly proud of, are now dominated by people who weren't born in the UK. Who's their allegiance with? And could that army be turned on the indigenous population of the UK or in Germany or the USA? And it feeds into that narrative what that oh, all these boat people, all these people arriving on planes and arriving through the Channel Tunnel, we're importing an army. Maybe that is exactly what we're doing. We're going to send them to war and we're going to use them for crowd control here in the UK. Well, it certainly uh, sounds very extreme, sounds like a very out there theory, but it's absolutely viable at this point in time. Who could say that it's not the case? I don't go into Belfast very often anymore. And in fact, I haven't been in there for probably over a year. The last time I was in Belfast was not Christmas past, but the Christmas before. Okay. And I had to take a train back to where I was living at the time. And I kid you not, Darren, the entire security force that were employed by uh, Northern Ireland Railways, TransLink, all of them, all of them, uh, let's just say, weren't uh, Belfast natives. That's what I'm saying. Uh, speaking in foreign languages to each other, up and down the platforms with the high-vis jackets on. And I'm talking the entire security staff mm -hmm. was was non-Irish people, okay? Not saying that's a bad thing in and of itself. They were doing their job. They weren't doing anything wrong. But I think it was very telling that the private security firm that employed them, I won't tell the name of the firm here, but I know what it is. Interestingly enough, there must have been 20 to 24 people there on duty that night, obviously from overseas. Now, you could say, well, so what? They were doing their job. I just think it's odd that the shift was so much here in, in Belfast. I'd never seen anything like that before. You know, it was it was strange, let's just say that. And I think that's what we're seeing now in the UK. It doesn't seem out of the question that they could throw the doors open to the military to non-nationals here as well and offer uh, quicker access to citizenship. What an incentive that would be. And it would be in keeping with their plan, I think, of uh, replacement over here. Because let's face it, uh, it doesn't take a, a genius to look around and see demographics changing. And I'm not against uh, migration. I'm not against people coming into the UK to work from other places. There are employment gaps that are being filled, but a lot of people, Darren, are entering the country, and we've said this innumerable times, illegally, illegally entering the country and being facilitated and being given accommodation and being given benefits illegally, and we don't have the infrastructure to support the British people, let alone people that are coming in illegally from other countries. Uh, and you see me nodding intently as you talked about the situation in Belfast on the railways with uh, private security forces appearing to be people from, I don't know, Africa or Asia. Mm -hmm. I see exactly the same in supermarkets in particular. In the recent six months, in the last six months, there's been a mat like a wholesale change of all the security guards in my local Sainsbury's and other supermarkets and stores mm -hmm. where they appear to be non-English speakers mm -hmm from overseas, Africa in particular, mm -hmm. tell by the color of their skin. Uh, and, um, you know, I find that concerning that the in, the white people, the, the, the Brits, the indigenous population are being controlled and monitored by people from outside of this country. You have to wonder if that's a deliberate ploy and that there's some sort of, and I hate using this word, psyop element to it, mm -hmm 
that people uh, that you know that the Brits milling around doing the mm. shopping in Sainsbury's are aware that oh look the people that are monitoring our oh, police forces our oh, 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 fire service our oh, army uh, they're mm. no longer British uh, and it's a part of that whole sort of great replacement myth or not so much of a myth that appears mm -hmm. to be happening here in the UK and, and here's and here's the thing of course we have to we have to put the caveat in lest we be accused of racism or you're against having black security guards or African security guards we're not saying that we're saying that we're not saying that they're not doing a good job we're not saying that they're not These being professional people we're not saying that but what we are saying is it's strange that jobs like that for example are now being completely filled by uh non non people that were born in britain or born in ireland that's the observation that i was making so for me having been you know spent 50 years of my life here in the north of ireland for me to go to a belfast train station and find every single security guard african it was odd, you know, after 50 years of that. Like I said, they were being professional. I'm not knocking it. They were working, probably, hopefully, paying taxes and national insurance back into the coffers again. But the point that I'm making is there's an absolute massive shift in demographic over jobs like that. And it does certainly raise an eyebrow and make you wonder uh, what is going on and what is happening uh, politically. Uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left here, believe it or not. Where's the time go, man? It just goes by so oh, fast. But politically, uh, we've been talking about the word in the street, probably an election this year. You were talking to Dom Ryder not so long ago. I had him on yesterday. I'm talking to David Thunder, trying to get alternatives, trying to get alternative suggestions because people complain a lot about politics. They say it should be done away with, but it's not going anywhere, Darren. It's not going anywhere. There is politics and it's not going away anywhere soon. We need viable alternatives, don't we? We can't be relying on the same old, same old, and even the bigger, smaller parties. They can't really be trusted either, can they? What are we going to do here, man? I don't know. I mean, reform. Richard Tice was out on GB News and other TV channels supporting the war in Ukraine. Now, he's no doubt he supports the conflict that's going on in the Middle East and Israel. Um, you know, everyone's, you know, the, the alternative that people have been talking about from my experience on social media is reform. And I'm like, no, guys. This isn't the answer. In fact, I don't think voting is the answer. Uh, I have been pushing uh, for a revolution, whatever that looks like. And the Dom Ryder has come up with a potential uh, alternative. But either way, we need to start protesting our government. Why are we sat on our backsides? We've got these unelected officials that we talked about earlier, driving us towards a potential conflict in multiple different arenas. We've got our country effectively being invaded and we're being um, uh, patrolled by people from Africa and from Asia. And people can see this and we do nothing. We had massive protests in 2021. They made a difference there. They, they slowed down the agenda and they made our politicians tra change track. We really, really need exactly the same numbers and more in the streets of London and in our towns and cities protesting our local authorities that they need to change and that we do no longer recognize them as the authority to make decisions on our lives and I can't mm -hmm. see it happening I'm pushing it I can't get real the real people that matter to engage um, and it's uh, you know we're gonna end up with a Labour government mate <laughs>
That's what's going to happen. It's a sobering thought. In fact, the last time you were on a couple of weeks ago, we were saying, you know, maybe even the next 12 months we could have a Labour government. You know, two weeks ago we were saying it could be 12 to 14 weeks. Now, Darren, it's down to 10 to 12 weeks. Who knows, depending on when they call uh, they call the election. And certainly uh, the smart money, if you were a betting person, uh, would be on Labour at the minute. Heaven forbid you would want to take those odds and actually profit from it. But it looks like it's a foregone conclusion. So any of the solutions that we're putting forward now won't be able to be implemented in time for whatever happens this year but certainly seeds need to be sown uh, for the yeah, longer game I'm over sure. the next uh, four to five years the music's playing in the background i can't believe it time's up already massive thanks to you darren for coming on this morning uh, and giving us your thoughts and views and opinions follow him on twitter at walsned w-o-l-s-n-e-d the mighty d denslow i'm rick munn i'm done for the day at least on air anyway james freeman is coming in after me back again tomorrow morning 9 a.m with natalie don't go away stay tuned for more magic here on tnt today's news talk <laughs>